This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Today, we're going to be talking about health disinformation. Now, in the past, we've talked about health misinformation, that is, second, third, fourth, and fifth hand bad information about COVID-19 that people can circulate around the internet. But today, we want to talk about two films that have a very specific purpose and were engineered to deceive the audience. The first one is called Plandemic, and the second one is called America's Frontline Doctors. The first one is much more of a documentary style. It's called Plandemic. Sean, can you talk to us a little bit about Plandemic? Sure. So Plandemic actually came out back in May, but it's a sort of rebranding and resequencing of some information that's been circulating online for a fairly long time, a couple of years. So the star of Plandemic is Judy Mikovits. Dr. Judy Mikovits. Yes, Dr. Judy Mikovits. And she basically presents information that is pretty head scratching if you ask um, any doctors on the front lines today around, you know, why we're more vulnerable about the virus. She's really heavily involved in the anti-vaxxer communities and saying that, you know, masks activate the virus. We're more likely to be, um, to catch the virus because of some of the ways medical experience are designed and that this is all a big conspiracy by big pharma. And she mentioned some of the big players right now, like Dr. Fauci and, and other folks. And it's, in this very documentary style. So she published a, a paper in science and that paper was then retracted because it wasn't possible to reproduce her research. And in that uh, research, it was, they found that there was contamination in the lab. And then after that, uh, there were some um, charges against her for some things that happened in the lab. And then she was kind of left the scientific community and then went into this anti-vaxxer community. And then now she's picked up this starring role and taking all the vaxxer misinformation, anti-vaxxer misinformation she's been spreading. And then it sort of got recut into this really professional looking, very smooth documentary style pandemic. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, there are a lot of layers to the pandemic film in the sense that there's a there's a ton of information that gets uh, presented to the audience about where the disease came from, about treatments, et cetera, et cetera. The the take home message. What would you say the take home message of pandemic is? That the virus is a conspiracy, and also that the large players that we see on TV every day. Bill Gates, Dr. Fauci, Big Pharma and vaccines, that this is all a fraud. The kind of second title for the film is A Plague of Corruption. And it, it seems like this film is much more concerned about how inadequate or shot through with vice all of the institutions that we trust really are. And I think it's something that's important to consider is the opening of the film. The opening of the film actually doesn't start with scientific evidence. The opening of this short film stars Dr. Mikovits and, you know, how she's been oppressed and how she's been hunted. And they use stock footage from, you know, a stock footage website and saying, you know, she was arrested. They search her home and then they cut to the stock footage of basically a raid on a home 
using military personnel. And that, that has no relationship to what actually happened, but it, it, it opens with, you know, she's this outsider that found the truth and then using all these different legal means, they've tried to suppress this information. And then they go into this, you know, pseudoscientific information later, but first they sort of create this character around her to add legitimacy uh, in this very specific way. Yeah. She's, I, I like the way you put that, that she's really the protagonist which is of this documentary, the, the documentary for the documentary style of this film is that you actually get to see the documentary filmmaker, the documentary filmmaker participates in the interviews. You're not having anybody look directly at a camera. They're looking off at an angle. It's that a documentary style that I think many people would recognize. There's a pretty high production value. It looks pretty polished. I mean, you mentioned the stock footage of the raid on her home, but it's integrated so well that if you weren't looking for the footage watermark, you really would think that was that was her home being raided. So there's a lot of touches to this film in terms of the cinematography and the production that make it seem like a documentary that we've seen many times before, right? It, it walks, talks, and acts like an old friend if you're used to watching documentary films. And it's reaching into anti-vaxxer and conspiracy communities through creating this like archetype of the scorned researcher that has the truth, but the current you know administration wants to suppress that. Yeah, and I I like this. So I, I mean, we can start inventorying the ways that this the, the kind of strategies that this film employs to deceive the audience. One we've covered is the kind of production aspect of it. The second is the narrative style, right? That is a familiar, a familiar narrative trope uh, to have the outcast researcher or to have the person with the truth shut out because those in power are the ones who want to lie. And so the more disempowered you are, the more truthful you become. And then we hook into existing controversies in communities that are against vaccination. So in these anti-vaxxer communities and uh, Mikevitz has been active in those communities in the past. So this is really not new information that she's bringing up. She's actually regurgitating information that she's been presenting for a while after she really left the scientific community because of the retraction and because of the theft of uh, documents and equipment from her lab. Yeah. And she gets, she's asked kind of straight up in this interview or in one of the interviews in the film, do you, are you an anti, are you an anti-vaxxer or something to that effect? And she says, of course not. Um, you know, I just, I want people to be well and I want people to use all that they can to, to fight disease, right? Some kind of watered down response that is kind of like a, a non-denial denial. And so the, some of the things that are said sound scientifically plausible, right? So this could be a third way that this film lies is using words like virus expressions, uh, healing sequences, right? And some kind of reference to like oblique references to molecular genetics, right? So these sound sciency, um, but they're nonsense, right? So the idea that you are rebreathing your own coronavirus expressions, right? Is a is some is a is a phrase that she uses to talk about mask wearing and why you shouldn't do it, or keeping people on lockdown keeps them away from the healing sequences in the sand and salt water. Uh, and so, again, that's something that sounds kind of 
sciencey, but really has no root in actual scientific knowledge. Well, she uses scientific language to then validate a lot of feelings those that uh, of those that might feel uncomfortable with vaccination or those that might feel uncomfortable or follow you know some of our political leaders like the president's lead in saying well this isn't as bad as as it you know as the media or some medical professionals are saying so she uses just enough of the scientific language to sound legitimate and that's really hard to parse for members of the public. It's like, you know, who's then the expert that you go to discuss? And also her language is just vague enough at many points when they ask, you know, was this SARS-CoV-2 virus created in a laboratory? And she says, I wouldn't use the word created, but you can't say it's naturally occurring. So she's there's this sort of vagueness in her response. So it's really a non-response. So then you can kind of attach, you know, it leaves enough questions for you to hook into this uh, narrative that she's trying to sell. Yeah, so there's a rhetorical position of using vagueness and vagaries in key ways. Or when pressed where you might be caught in a direct lie, you can be vague as a way to escape that, right? So it's a deception technique, but it's definitely one of the ways that this film is able to lie. I would say that another way that this film is able to create the fabrication that it does is to create this naturalistic fallacy uh, that all things from nature are good and restorative and that modern biomedicine is actually quite confused and is so far away from nature that it has lost its ability to actually help people. And I think you see this in her rhetoric about, say, being close to the ocean or the soil is going to boost your immune system. Being on lockdown is going to turn you into a bubble person that has no immune system and will therefore get sicker that being outside and being around other people and just living a good, healthy life is going to save you more than anything else. So all of these appeals to some kind of imagined natural state are going to boost your immunity or boost your survivability. And that the mechanistic and kind of uh, data-driven monstrosity of contemporary biomedicine, that's the thing we should really be afraid of. When I think reading a, a quote might be helpful, when you know she says, why would you close the beach? You've got sequences in the soil, in the sand. You've got healing microbes in the ocean, in the salt water. That's insanity. Yeah, that's perfect. And, you know, there's no medical term of sequences in the soil. And that's untrue that there are healing microbes in the ocean. Like, none of this is scientific fact, but it sounds just good enough. And also at this time, this is during the early days of the lockdown before we had sort of come out of this lockdown. So she's saying, don't close the beach. Don't close these spaces. Don't wear masks. And then she's using some scientific pseudoscience language that makes it sound somewhat legitimate. So if you're already predisposed to not want to close the beach and you think it's, you know, it's problematic, like I should be able to go outside or you think you shouldn't have to wear a mask for a whole host of reasons. Then you're like, look, here's some scientific language. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. And that's that, that information became very sticky um, in the sense that it disinformed people on purpose. And then that became misinformation in the sense that somebody would share it with somebody else. The bit about saltwater, you know, there's actually uh, kind of recorded conversations with people saying, oh, yeah, well, you just need to be near the saltwater and you'll be fine. Right. There's a comedy comedy duo that, you know, we're not going to boost 
anybody in particular right now. There's a comedy duo that did a sketch where they just asked people if they wanted masks on a beach in California. And more than one person said, actually, I've got, you know, as long as you're near the saltwater, you're fine. And it's very interesting to be able to see that video in July and know where that lie probably started back in early May. I've seen the video you're discussing, but uh, the other part is these things are so sticky. We're still having conversations around mask wearing where folks are saying, well, it activates the virus. I breathe in my own virus. So therefore I'm more susceptible to COVID as a result. You know, I, you can't lock down these spaces. So we're still having these conversations whenever city, for example, in Phoenix, whenever city leaders required masks or like, for example, the, the Phoenix International Airport and Sky Harbor required masks. There were hundreds of comments that just mimicked all of these points in this video. Yeah. Um, Louis Gomer, who is the state representative from uh, Texas in the U.S. Congress, recently, uh, what is today? It's July 29th, 30th? July 31st. July 31st. We're on July 31st. A couple days ago, Louis Gomert was uh, tested positive for COVID-19. One of the things he said was that he got sick. He can't help but think that most recently, within the last 10 days, he started wearing a mask and that him wearing the mask has something to do with it. And he even called out specifically that he thought he got virus into the mask and then having that mask on his face exposed him to more virus. I feel like just sort of a moment of silence for the lack of scientific education in this country. Yes. Well, and that, that, that move of saying, I can't help but think is just one of those things that I'm not making a commitment to evidence-based uh, argument. I am not trying to say that I'm going to be logical. I'm not trying to say that I have good information. It's just saying I'm using possible explanations and substituting them for actual explanations. I can't help but think that this virus or that these masks or wearing a mask for 10 days made me sick. It's similar ways of avoiding the truth or rationalizing bad information uh, or a bad explanation as we see in these videos. And even though I don't think that he inherited the direct line of rhetoric from these videos, uh, it, it does show that the, the kind of conjectures about disease are more powerful for people sometimes than the evidence about disease. Well, there's so much uncertainty in the, the science at this moment in time because the virus is so new. And I think a lot of the public forgets you know, some of their training to understand that, you know, science isn't about, we have a factual answer and then we're done. Science is, here's the latest information that we have. When we gather more information, that might change. And this is the best available information at the time. So in many ways, there's a level of uncertainty in science that a lot of folks are not comfortable with. And they think that because our information has changed over time as we've learned more Then that's used as an excuse to say, well, see, you've been wrong the entire time. Yeah. And it's not like movies or media do any kind of help, right? Where people can synthesize antidotes and compounds in 48 hours. Uh, people's expectations about science being able to just bang out answers and certainty 
relatively short order. That's kind of the, the fantasy diet that we're fed in general. The idea that science deals with real uncertainty and takes an awful lot of time. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's it's not something that a lot of people are used to confronting. You, you know, how many how many hits does the pandemic film get? I say hits, but I mean like shares. Um, generally speaking, how we quantify interactions with pandemic. Is there a final count? I know that this is kind of confounding because it's not like pandemic is hosted on a bunch of different servers. You know, it made its run through Facebook and got shared a ton on Facebook. And then it ended up being dissolved on a number of different platforms on a number of different websites. There's no way to really know what a final number for the number of times pandemic was shared, watched, liked, downloaded, whatever. But do we have access to any of the figures? I've heard 8 million tossed around before, but can you put that in context a little bit? I mean, the best guesses that we have are garnering millions and millions of views because basically once this video was posted, then the platforms eventually tagged it as misinformation and started to remove that content. And the interesting thing about that technique is that uh, once you delete that content, then some folks like, well, information needs to be free. What don't you want me to know? So it added this sort of unsolved mysteries type of intrigue to the, to the film or to the short, it's not really a film, film would be much longer. Well, remember, it's Plandemic Part 1. We're expected that Plandemic Part 2 may come out at some point. We just don't know. But it is labeled Plandemic Part 1. It's, it's about 25 minutes long, so that's, that's not necessarily film length, maybe. But basically what happened is as it was removed by the platform, so this is their strategy is to remove misinformation. So content that's this is Facebook, so right? problematic. Yeah. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube... Uh, search engines removed links to this content. So, you know, Google and DuckDuckGo and Bing and et cetera, et cetera, remove some of this content. So it just, people would continually re-upload it to these sites and then it would be viewed so many tens of thousands of times. That link wouldn't work. Somebody would post another link until finally it's found a home on some edges of the internet and those sites. So it's not possible to get a count, but we know we're in the tens of millions of views easy, no questions. Okay. So, so it's good to like put a number on that. Do you have any other kind of final comments or thoughts on pandemic before we move on to the, to the next film in quotes that we're going to talk about today? So there is recently a twist on this, this film in that earlier in July, actually, I believe last week, Sinclair Broadcasting Corporation announced plans to televise an interview with Dr. Mikevitz. And Sinclair Broadcasting, for those who aren't familiar with the, the network of quote-unquote local broadcasting venues, that is Sinclair. Can you talk a little bit about what the significance of Sinclair is being on board with something like this? So Sinclair owns a large number of local television stations. So you turn on, look at your local news. So for example, our local Phoenix, in Phoenix, our local Fox affiliate station is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting. So they own a whole, a number of these stations. And um, so this means that we would basically reach people and, and Judy Makovitz would be interviewed on these local T, you know, and broadcast on these local TV stations basically throughout the entire United States. Yeah. So it's in some ways having it appear on your local news makes it seem organic and truthful. And the, the show that she was going to be on, they, you know, there were pieces of the interview released beforehand and 
you know, that it wasn't really a critical interview at all. It was just, you know, treating this as legitimate information. And there was such an uproar whenever that it was announced that this was going to happen, that this uh, episode uh, section of the episode was actually removed and they decided not to air that episode. So airing that particular segment with Dr. Judy Mikovits just didn't happen. I, I, I can't find any station that actually did it. It seemed like, as you mentioned, like a, a decision from the top um, where they just decided to pull the plug on it. But interesting that, uh, you know, just as a quick aside, masquerading as local news when you're really owned and coordinated by a much larger body um, is a is a deceitful and possibly disinforming technique. Well, and the, the host of the show, so the show is called America This Week, and the host of the show, um, his name is Eric Bulling. He was scheduled to interview her. And then after they pulled the segment, he said, well, I really just didn't know anything about her. I have no idea. I just, you know, was following the directions of my producers and I didn't know that she was peddling misinformation, which for a host of a kind of new style show to have very little understanding of the guest that he's interviewing says a lot about the quality of the show. Yes. And um, possibly how difficult it can be sometimes to arbitrate between a, a truthful guest and a non-truthful guest. And I, I don't mean that to cut anybody slack who, you know, didn't do a careful vetting process. But, you know, Dr. Judy Mikovits to some people is a celebrity, is a celebrity scientist um, and a very accomplished scientist. Um, so people see people differently, but she is incredibly well known. And sometimes that passes for credibility. I think it's important to put a little asterisk on that incredibly well known. She's only known within very small communities, especially the anti-vaxxer community. She's more of a household name today due to pandemic and especially due to, you know, the issues around America this week and not going, she probably got more publicity by not going on the show than she would have if it would have aired because of the uproar, but within the scientific community. So on pandemic, they describe her as this very prestigious famous researcher, which was not true. She was not prestigious. She was not uh, famous. Uh, I mean, a science article is a, um, is a, is a accomplishment. Yeah. Um, a retraction. I mean, retractions happen sometimes for fraud. This wasn't the case that it was actually for fraud. It was a case that there was contamination in the lab. So therefore the result wasn't due to, you know, science. It was, you know, there wasn't a significant result. It was actually due to contamination in the lab. So that's why the paper was removed. There wasn't anything nefarious. Uh, there were no accusations of anything nefarious. So, um, but she's not a, a famous, well-known scientist. She left the scientific community after this uh, science paper. And, and that was sort of it. And then now they're presenting her in this way, this light that uh, lends more more weight to what she has to say than is actually accurate. Yeah, this 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 pandemic film definitely cleaned up her image in some to, in some ways to some audiences. This is kind of like a grim version of when an actor or actress has a new film come out and then they do the talk show circuit. Um, it's almost like the kind of misinformation equivalent is your stuff goes really big on YouTube and Facebook. And then it gets blocked. You become more notable, and then you show up on Sinclair Broadcasting venues um, talking about your misinformation. But tens of millions of interactions is is not nothing, and is is certainly a signal boost to 
you know, what I think what made this, you know, as we kind of round out our discussion on this particular film, as, as you mentioned, one thing that makes this additionally persuasive is how it harmonized with a lot of the ways that people think already about medicine. And so the anti-vaxxer crowd was dog whistled really hard in this video. And people who think, who just distrust institutions in the government were dog whistled, not even dog whistled, right? Just bullhorned um, pretty aggressively in this video. It matched and met a need to, uh, of the audience in a way that lots of sophisticated communications do. It understood the audience and it understood the messages that would resonate. So you used the, the phrase dog whistle. Can you maybe explain that briefly? Yeah, dog whistle is the shorthand for dropping clues um, or alluding to certain truths or narratives. You don't actually come out and say them, but the people who are people who kind of believe something, it will resonate with that belief. So oftentimes when people hear, say, the president of the United States say that, you know, these these people are animals for instance, end quote, then many people will say, actually, that's, you know, they say that's dressed up in the moralistic language of judging people who are in violent gangs, but using the term animal specifically, that word is used very frequently in the racist discussions of non-white peoples. And so you're basically using a word or using an illusion or using a narrative that appears innocuous or arbitrary, but is actually part and parcel of another community's narrative or another set of assumptions, how they narrate and see the world. Um, and it resonates with those things. That's dog whistling. So in summary, pandemic there in, in pandemic, there are a lot of brilliant strategic moves from the design of the documentary, the use of the documentary style to lend legitimacy, creating this sort of archetype of the shunned researcher where those in power are kind of suppressing disinformation, um, the dog whistling to or bullhorning to folks that are in these various anti-vaxxer communities and maybe sort of COVID deniers. And you just kind of hook into these in so many ways and the use of vague language so that we can go back whenever scientists try to debunk this and say, well, no, that's not what I said. I said that maybe. I didn't say that's the truth. Yeah. And then that, the last thing I would add to that is that naturalistic fallacy which is that nature knows better than anybody else, that medicine is just this misguided nerd uh, that doesn't understand that nature is really where all the cures are. Um, so from vaccines to coronavirus treatments of any stripe, what we really need to think about is how, the, how nature knows best. That fallacy, I think, is, is, is another technique that, that this film uses really effectively. So what's the, the so we have this this other video that's uh, in some ways a bit of a con in the same vein but also a bit of a contrast to the pandemic video very different style right very different style so the styling is different but the goals are the same goals are the, yeah I mean I it's hard to me it's hard to conjecture about the goals exactly of pandemic other than to just so distrust in institutions. It's not as difficult to conjecture about the goals for America's frontline doctors because it's paid for by Tea Party Patriots, um, which is a super PAC. It is very upfront, or, or Tea Party Patriots is very upfront about wanting to reopen. They're, what they want is reopening the economy, get kids back in school. That is their goal. I have no idea 
if the makers of Plandemic are that specific about what they want. But the distrust that they want, if we know for sure, uh, at the very least, that sowing distrust in institutions, right, that's just reading that, ar- that, that video on its face. But America's frontline doctors, right, given the funders of it, there's, I think there's a more specific agenda there. But I think, let's be clear, in the case of both of these videos, this was not an intentional misinformation. This definitely, was intentional definitely. disinformation. There's there no qualms, of, no question about that. This wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know. This is, I actually know what's right and what the truth is. Yes. And I, I think that the, you know, for a pandemic, you know, the best, I'm not sure if there were any specific decisions or actions that the, that are being advocated for in pandemic, right? Um, we know that for the, the America's frontline doctors, they come out and say it. They say, we need to open schools. We need to get back to work. We need to end the lockdown. That those kinds of recommendations didn't come, they didn't come right out and say that with something like pandemic. I think the, the goals were a little bit more abstract, but to your point, yes, absolutely. There were goals, there were purposes, there was intent. So let's break down the America's frontline doctors. It's sort of a live stream feel to it. Um, can you describe a little bit of the video and the location first? Yeah, America's Frontline Doctors Summit, paid for by the Tea Party Patriots Citizens Fund, uh, is kind of, is filmed on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court with a group of maybe eight to ten uh, people in white lab coats. And it looks like a press conference, although you never get to see the audience uh, or how many people are actually there. Um, but it looks like a press conference of physicians. There's the, I think, a, a representative from South Carolina in the Congress, Ralph Norman, is the guy who gives the kind of opening remarks. And then he just turns it over to the physicians. And so it looks like a press conference of physicians. It doesn't seem like the kind of docu- participatory documentary that Plandemic does. Instead, it looks like of something that you might see on the news, and it's meant to emulate that in form. And uh, we can see some similar pieces. So there's some differences and similarities to Plandemic, but you know, standing on the steps of the Supreme Court, doctors in a bunch of white coats standing behind, uh, giving information that lends a, a different type of legitimacy to the content. Yeah, they're just clubbing you on the head, right? With the different markers of legitimacy and power. Um, they just, it's really, they layer it on pretty thick. How many times have you seen a doctor at a press conference wearing a white lab coat? Uh, only sort of the in-hospital press conferences every once in a while. You know, there is some you know, <laughs> amazing surgery or there's someone, you know, very famous that's in surgery. You know, like they're separating co-joined twins. And that's the kind of press conference where, you know, you see surgeon in lab coats, but never, you know, they don't wear lab coats when they testify in front of Congress. Yeah. I, what gets me about this, and I guess we'll get into this here in a second, but they, they create an opposition between them and laboratory knowledge, right? So the people who do the lab knowledge and who are the scientists who are very far away from patients, they just you know, they don't know anything, but we're the actual doctors, but they're dressed up in white coats, which makes the, makes them kind of ambiguous with people that spend a lot of time in a lab. 
um, I don't know, it's confused in that regard. Um, even though I recognize that white coats are, you know, they don't just belong in a lab. Either way, they bring their white coats to this press conference, as, as you mentioned, to kind of wield as much power as possible in this press conference. And what they say in this press conference is they lay out very simply that America needs to reopen, that we are trapped in what they call a spider web of fear, and that we really have nothing to worry about, that thousands of doctors, and this is they're here to tell the world, uh, that thousands of doctors have been silenced. But the truth is, coronavirus, there is a cure. And that cure is hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And this is where the kind of notable figure, kind of the definitely the most outspoken person on this, uh, on this, I can't call it a press conference, whatever act this is, the most outspoken uh, doctor, Dr. Stella Emanuel, is the one that the, the president of the United States ended up re- kind of endorsing and retweeting a, a clip or maybe the whole thing. But she was the one who, to him, represented that video and her perspective. Also, a huge proponent of hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And these doctors claim to have treated hundreds and hundreds of, of patients. But if you look at some of the news inquiry that's happened afterwards, there's actually not a lot of evidence that they've treated hundreds and hundreds of COVID patients. Yeah, they cite a lot of reps. And they say that from their firsthand experience, no one has gotten heart disease. No one has, they haven't, actually, Dr. Emanuel makes the point, not a single person has died that I have treated who had COVID-19. But I think it's really important, a very important sentence to continually repeat is that the plural of anecdote is not data. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know that's why medical studies and scientific research is designed in a specific way because our experience you know we might be treating certain types of patients we might have certain types of participants that all have same the same similar features and so therefore you know when we go outside of the little bubble that we're in that still doesn't that doesn't work anymore it doesn't apply there might be something special about the group you know they're all homogeneous or so similar in ways once we go out into the general population, that doesn't work. So they're also citing a lot of studies. So they cite studies, which has a lot of power. In many ways, it's kind of like, you know, if every time you go to Wikipedia, we're trained to trust, you know, there's a little in the corner, there's a little number in brackets that sends us to a citation. So if you cite something, if you say there's a study, but they cite studies, and then if you actually go back and read these studies, for example, the the study that she cites about the 62-year-old man who went to the emergency room and was found to be, you know, COVID positive, the authors of that case actually highlight that physicians should bear in mind more atypical presentations of COVID-19 and not really speculate about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. So the, the actual authors of the paper say this is about atypical presentations of COVID, not about the effectiveness of this medication, but instead we kind of twist that and say, well, there's a scientific study, which in the sort of general news media has been a problem is that there's a, you know, there's a study that came out, but we actually have to understand the findings of that study, but then also understand, has that study been peer reviewed? Has it gone through that process? Is this the, has this just been something, somebody wrote a draft and then published it. So it hasn't been vetted. So it's really complicated 
um, use of, you know, there's a study. So what I'm saying is legitimate, but if you go to the study, nope, you've just totally misused that study for your own purposes. And that's not what the study says at all. Yeah. And it's, it's super tough because they talk about studies in two ways. One is that there was a study and you should trust it. Like you mentioned, the other one is they talk about doctors who care about data too much as being robots with scrambled microchips. And that what you really need to worry about is experience. They mention multiple times that doctors who are making these proclamations about hydroxychloroquine being uh, harmful or not really anything that's going to help as being too distant from patients and from the clinic. And that it's clinicians who you should be listening to because they're the ones who have the actual experience. But there's a huge difference between, so we've talked a little bit about this before, that expertise. So who is the expert in this matter? And especially around the coronavirus, we require different expertise depending upon what we're discussing. If we're looking at spread of a virus, then we have epidemiology. If we're looking at the virus itself, you know, we have geneticists and microbiologists and virologists that are involved. So who actually is an expert is a important question. And so they're saying, let's push all this aside and doctors who are really not trained in conducting research, let's ignore the researchers is what she's saying. Trust the people who are on the front lines that might have seen, you know, 50 patients, a hundred patients, if that versus someone who's designed to, you know, they, they design work to really understand the science of what's happening in the general population and conflating the two is really problematic. Yeah. I mean, I see this as a, as a reap, right? So we see certain things in this film that are very similar to pandemic in that you're emulating a, f- a form that people trust. So that direct experience with a news conference where we are almost parodying that. Um, but we're, we're using that to be able to seem legitimate. We're using these symbols of power to seem legitimate. That naturalistic fallacy comes back. This idea that the people who are close to the patients who one time they talk about until you've touched your patient's skin is, is something that gets mentioned as a way to get knowledge that there's this uh, organic kind of from the earth way to practice medicine. And that science has it all wrong. There's a different kind of science here. And that science says hydroxychloroquine is great. They try to cast doubt on existing hydroxychloroquine trials, trying to say that they use too much. They use a toxic amount that these doctors actually poison you. Again, back to this idea of use a small amount of hydroxychloroquine and allow your body to do its thing. It, it sounds an awful lot like homeopathic work at some point. But they keep coming back to this idea that the more naturalistic you are, the more interactive you are, the more social and kind of back to basics your medicine, then the more reliable your knowledge. And so they don't want to tell us that there's a massive government conspiracy out there to try to make us all sick and create genocide like pandemic is trying to tell us. But they are trying to say, hey, we're doctors. We're here to help. And these scientists, boy, they're just so mixed up. They need to listen to us instead. And both of these videos use these different techniques to kind of say the same thing. This is not as big of a problem as the scientists and researchers are telling you and other doctors are telling you. They're using this technique to say, well, if we just do these things, it's all going to be fine. And then this will be over. 
Yeah. And they, you know, they say multiple times, we do not have to be afraid of coronavirus. There is a cure. It is called hydroxychloroquine and zinc over and over and over again. And so their tone is like their approach is different rather than say, there's this massive conspiracy and all these bad actors. They're trying to say, actually, we're trapped by fear. These doctors that do a bunch of research and only care about data are really misguided. We are here to tell you the truth. We can just be unafraid, go back to school, resume our normal lives as long as we take hydroxychloroquine in a preventative way. We don't even need masks. And so their position is a little bit different. Rather than being the harbingers of doom and danger, they're trying to be these beacons of hope who are really well-meaning and down to earth and represent something that a lot of people can relate to about trusting their own experience. Well, and also we have to trust our physicians. I mean, we go to see physicians at many different points in our lives, some of them just regular checkups, but most often right now we go to position physicians at a very critical moment when we're sick, we're concerned about being sick. Some people might be dying. And so we have to trust them. So that's what's confusing is how can we not trust someone that we go to in a time of need and using that sort of archetype. And it's interesting that if we contrast pandemic with uh, America's frontline doctors, we have sort of similar goals of if we just do these things, it's going to be okay. Coronavirus is not that big of a deal, but then we're appealing to two different communities. So pandemic more appeals to anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory communities so that kind of bends towards those communities. This America's frontline doctors is designed to appeal to a wider audience that wouldn't buy into or don't already feel comfortable with some of the conspiracy conspiracy theories or are more comfortable with vaccinations. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. So combine these two together, this is a very brilliant strategy to reach two different communities. So then, you know, Basically, there's not as much overlap between these two communities in like a Venn diagram. So we basically get two different audiences with the sort of same goals to say, this is not a big deal. Calm down. Everything's going to be fine. We just need to take a little bit of medication here and, and then we can reopen the economy. We can reopen schools. We don't have to worry about that narrative. Yeah. And it just so it coincidentally goes to war, both of them with like the smarty pants. Right. That if you're doing research and you care about data and you care about reliability, then you actually we don't need to listen to you anymore. Um, and so this the tone of this second film that we're talking about is absolutely defiant when it comes to how credible uh, researchers are uh, as opposed to clinicians. And so it tries to draw this distinction and it, it, it really does, uh, in my opinion, does a very kind of effective attempt at trying to sow doubt uh, about people who, who care about science, who care about evidence, that the evidence that they care about is anecdotal. And it, 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 it helps create those preconditions for misinformation that we've been talking about, um, in, in previous, in previous shows, which is that as soon as you can't trust traditional experts, then all kinds of things become permissible when it comes to circulating any kind of disinformation content. So let's think, what's the, now we know that this was retweeted by the president of the United States. We know that it was featured on some very right-leaning news media outlets. Do we have a sense of what the interactions were for this video? 
So we know that this video has received at least 20 million views, uh, according to some of the news media and documentation. So where's the kind of trackable kind of interactions for one was 8 million plus some unknown amount, but we know it's big. The kind of baseline for this one is around 20 million. Yeah, about 20 million um, so far. And what we've seen is the platforms took a, a similar strategy, but I think even more aggressive than with Plandemic. So I think a big difference with America's frontline doctors and Plandemic is that President Trump retweeted this video. So that pushed this video into a very prominent position. And so the social media platforms, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, even search engines, you know, Google with YouTube and, you know, Microsoft with Bing, they basically have scoured the web. You don't have to talk about Bing. Is, do, we, do we have to talk about Bing? Is that? <laughs> I guess we lost our Microsoft sponsorship right there. <laughs> Does anyone use Bing? Yeah, a lot of people use Bing. A lot of uh, products uh, use Bing and Bing's integrated into Windows. All right, I'll back off. Don't hate on Bing. Don't hate on Bing. It's not hate. It's just skepticism. Okay. So I would say, so these platforms, I think, have put even more effort into removing this video and removing the America's Frontline Doctors video and removing it faster because Trump brought it to their attention, forced it to their attention. So they've more actively removed this misinformation. And so it's very difficult to go back and look to see, well, how many views, how has this been spread? But we do know... We're having, you know, we're about somewhere around a million interactions in, you know, since July 24th. And most of those interactions with his content have been since the 26th. So the last seven days, there's been a lot of discussion of this, of this video because it's been taken down, especially in like the Breitbart and Glenn Beck and Tea Party communities. They've just been pushing like this has been suppressed. The truth is being suppressed by social media platforms. So we need to discuss this video. You can't watch it, but here's what the video told you. And you should believe it because these platforms are suppressing this content. Yeah. And I guess that kind of brings us to the final, to the final bit, which is how do you how do you combat very sophisticated very effective crafted pieces of disinformation especially in a time of kind of emergency when people don't exercise the same time frame for evaluating stuff the response of social media platforms was to take them down and we've observed kind of what that did is it made them even more popular because they were taken down and lent them more credibility. Do you think despite all of those things that it's still the best thing to do to unpost that content or to delete it? I do. I think that it lends legitimacy within certain communities, but I would argue that those communities were more likely to be predisposed to this content anyway. So it's not going to change anybody's mind to have it deleted. It's only going to galvanize the people who already believed it in the first place? Yes, I, I, I would concur with that. I think, I mean, the problem is we don't, this is difficult. I mean, misinformation and disinformation are not a new problem. You know, we've had, you know, misinformation, propaganda, you know, since we've been able to communicate as humans, incorrect information and purposely incorrect information has been a problem and continues to be a problem. So we don't have good solutions we have choices that can make it worse. So whenever we have political leaders that 
provide contradictory information. So if we're not speaking with one with one voice, so our health professionals, our political professionals, you know, our corporate leaders, when they're speaking with one voice, that kind of helps us inoculate. When we're speaking with many different voices and we're saying contradictory information, we don't know what to believe. So then who's the expert? Who should we believe? So then that makes us even more vulnerable to this because then there's a vacuum of, you know, what's what's the truth? Yeah, and I, I feel like then following on that, the I, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with uh, like Claire Wardle and Hossein Darakshan, who, you know, when they're talking about recommendations for platforms and how they should address disinformation and misinformation, that there should be some kind of standard labeling or standard or at least recognizable set of criteria for flagging misinformation and then possibly categorizing misinformation. And even though that sounds really ambitious, some cooperation between social media platforms seems like it would help this an awful lot. But I, I, I think that's, that's also really difficult not to give platforms a pass. They're really in a sort of untenable situation where they're sort of damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. And that's not saying they shouldn't do anything. And, um, so politically, it's, it's very difficult, especially within our current context, because there's not agreement about this. When the president is tweeting out misinformation, that's highly problematic for others to then classify that as misinformation and um, then to remove that content and label that content, because that's a very high profile person to label. Yeah, but it's tough because if I've got something on Twitter and it gets taken down from Twitter, but all I have to do is move it to Facebook and I'm good, which, you know... We see that. Um, and, you know, that allows people to exploit the differences in the platforms to still pump out the misinformation. Um, now, I, I'm not trying to say that the platforms cooperating is an easy thing or a straightforward thing, um, but I think structurally, it's just something that's there that allows that mis and disinformation to flourish. I, I tend to think that a retraction is going to be better than just a straight up delete. Um, and so letting people know that something was there with a note about misinformation, I think is always more helpful than just deleting it or unposting it. And I know these things unfold differently for each of the different things that we're talking about on different platforms, but just generally speaking, uh, I feel like retractions are much better. Retractions and corrections are better than just straight up deletes. But you also then have to believe those sources of the retractions and saying, we're retracting this based on information from these experts, from these publications. So if you don't believe the mainstream media, if you don't believe scientists, you know, our prominent scientists, so if you don't believe the CDC or the NIH, then that that labeling or retraction based upon that foundation from those organizations or those individuals, then that, that all that does is sort of light, add more fuel to your fire. Sure. But back to your point of those people are never going to be convinced in the first place, but sometimes it can be very helpful to have it on the record and to have it available because it's still something that happened to have it disappear completely feels like it's not, it's not entirely truthful about what happened. And so for instance, if we want to, evaluate uh, these videos that we're talking about right now. If it takes so much work to access them, 
because there's no actual way to view them because they're banned. That does feel like it's getting in the way of making sure it's on the record and disputed, documented, part of a discussion. Um, I understand that has pitfalls, but just getting rid of them wholesale and trying to scrub them from the internet seems problematic, even for the folks that, or especially for the folks who don't believe it. Well, we have examples of, of this in other spaces. So for example, organizations like the Internet Archive, which operates something called the Wayback Machine, which archives portions of the World Wide Web. So you can go to the, go to archive.org, put in a URL, and you can see what a website looked like in, you know, 1998. So you can look at ASU's website from now all the way back into the early 90s, which is kind of embarrassing whenever you look at, you know, what the old web used to look like. You're like, really? But, you know, those were, those were in some ways, those were better days, but but I take your point that um, maybe if I'm going to the platforms, if I'm expecting the platforms to do the job of, say, archivists and other 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 organizations that are interested in the public record, maybe I'm going to the wrong place. Unfortunately, those that are kind of invested in the public record or in the human record just aren't terribly well resourced. Yeah, they aren't resourced. And also there's questions of what to do. So in the case of Internet Archive, White supremacist group, for example, use the archive as a tool. So then, you know, they'll post websites that have hate speech and, you know, Nazi symbolisms, things like that. And then they'll ask the Internet Archive to archive that. They don't call call them up. It's all an automated process. And then instead of using their normal website, they use the archived copy that's deep inside of the Internet Archive, and that copy is going to stick around. So what we want to be careful is how do we create strategies of keeping copies of this problematic and harmful information, but not allow these archives to be used as a tool to stabilize and continue to circulate that information? And it's a really hard line to, to walk. It's almost as if there's a complex problem that intersects a lot of different systems of technology, culture, history, and politics. There isn't just a merely technological fix for it. It's almost like that's the case. Just, just slightly, Pop. Just slightly. Just slightly. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts about these videos and how to respond to them before we wrap up? Uh, sure. And I, there are some cases of the platforms working together on content moderation. So child pornography, for example, is a place where they're oh, yeah. collaborating. I'm and they have databases of the signatures of these images. So they don't store the images themselves. They have like a thumbprint of, of the image in these videos. And then when content is posted, they can compare those two things to see, is this an image of child pornography that we're already aware of? And if it is, they can automatically remove that content. So there are examples where they can work on these, but it's also really, this is a difficult problem. So how do you can recognize this content? So if you take the video and maybe you cut out the first five seconds, now it looks like a different video. So these are really hard problems to solve. These aren't just technological solutions for um, removing this content or rec you know, recognizing the content so we can address that. So this is a really hard space. But I would say the sort of final, my final thought is that it's really important for us to understand the techniques that these videos are using to then sort of grab us and bring us into you know, a space of, of doubt to then sort of question something. And you know, well, we're questioning the science now. We're questioning 
you know, the, our leaders now were questioning, you know, our schools, should they be reopening, why they made these decisions. And I don't mean that in the sense of we shouldn't think critically about policies, but they're using scientific language in a way that's not scientific. Yeah. And it's kind of corrosive long-term to trust in scientific uh, kind of approaches and institutions when in fact, it feels like those institutions are going to need to be trusted a whole lot more going into the future. Yes. I mean, that's, so if we can delegitimize those institutions now and those leaders now, then, you know, we basically create chaos afterwards. Yeah. Or in the case of this last video that we talked about, getting your pretty basic outcomes accomplished, such as sending all children back to school without any further reflection or reopening the economy without any further reflection and getting all of the benefits and consequences for that, you know, you can cause distrust just so there's general confusion and chaos, but then you can also just make things more pliable to advance a pretty brute force uh, policy advocacy there. And it's interesting how both of these videos ignore the context of the rest of the world and how the rest of the world is addressing and successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully addressing the coronavirus. They just, this, this happens in it. This, this content's created in a vacuum in a way that doesn't reach out to, well, actually this has been successful. You know, we've seen France isn't using this medication. They're using this medication, but you know, the doctors in, in these films, they just ignore that reality. Yeah. So you're kind of out on an Island. Oftentimes the U S is an Island. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's interesting to think about America as exceptional, um, in some, in some forms, but on the others, as, as you mentioned to kind of seal off your knowledge, you become kind of like a prisoner and they don't let you in on what's out there in the outside world. You just, you're subject to the, the world that they give to you. It's a very selective view of the world and they use this scientific language, but their language isn't even pseudoscience. It's just unrecognizable. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that is an effective way to wrap up today. Thanks everybody for joining us on this conversation and we will talk to you in the next one. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.